hello to you, Dennis. It is good afternoon. And we see in the media just recently that there's uh, lots of encouragement for adults to use bowel testing kits um, to aid early detection for mm. bowel cancer or colon cancer. Mm. Why, why is there such an emphasis on this? Well, I think people probably don't appreciate that bowel cancer is one of the most uh, rampant and uh, common forms of cancer. And uh, the programs presently to make people aware are uh, to get people to see these things and to participate in a early detection program and perhaps even a preventative program. We'll talk a bit about it today. To a new RFM, it is health naturally. And Dennis Stewart, um, the bowel test, mm, um, mm. what does the test actually look for? Look, to keep it simple, um, the bowel test looks for traces of blood um, in, the, in the sample that's taken, which doesn't necessarily mean it's cancer, but it could be cancer. It could be an indication of other things like um, hemorrhoids or uh, inflammatory bowel disease. But they look for, for blood. I'll keep it as simple as I can. And, and that show, if it shows up as a positive um, test result, the individual is then informed and um, is frequently referred to uh, their GP and subsequently uh, to a specialist that uh, specialises in colonoscopies in order to check the large bowel or the colon to see if there is any or if there are any lesions on the colon wall that could explain the appearance of, of blood, say, in the species or in the specimen that was taken. So it's quite a simple test and uh, the the federal government has been involved in forwarding out, particularly to senior people, uh, bowel testing kits. And uh, I think that's a remarkable initiative because this, in my opinion, is uh, preventative medicine at its best and uh, one must give it a plug. It's a great initiative. I can speak very personally about the success of these uh, preventative programs that our governments, state and uh, commonwealth um, encourage uh, the I would contend, and I think my wife would contend, that the breast screening program that uh, we see so frequently uh, evidenced by uh, breast screening um, carriers or trailers around the place, uh, had it not been um, her being screened, her, uh, her diagnosed breast cancer, her early diagnosed breast cancer, may well have taken off and she may well have not had the good result that she did uh, subsequent to finding a very small uh, tumour in her breast, which was successfully uh, managed by an excellent surgeon. Uh, and that is a good example of what I call uh, a good testimony to preventative medicine, a screening program. Now, similarly, we could say that the the, the bowel testing um, or the bowel testing kit program is preventative medicine because it similarly seeks to locate evidence that might be, be associated with the emergence of a tumour on the bowel wall. And those tumours on the bowel or the colon wall um, can, in their early state, be very, very successfully uh, managed um, by specialist physicians and surgeons to the extent that just like a breast cancer they can be excised uh, the lesion can be removed 
and with subsequent monitoring, the outcome can be very, very good indeed. The problem basically is if um, bowel cancer is not detected early, it can, to use my terminology, uh, jump the bowel wall and begin to infiltrate itself into other organs. And in the case of colon or bowel cancer, unfortunately, it frequently involves the liver. And when that occurs, we're looking at a very, very serious state. And uh, I can speak uh, personally about this. People might say, look, what do natural therapists know about uh, colon cancer and these sorts of things? Well, it might surprise listeners to know that uh, naturopaths, natural therapists, see a lot of people that um, are struggling with the after effects of colon cancer or some of whom have been diagnosed and undergoing treatment for colon cancer who present to see if there is anything in lifestyle factors, supplements, etc., that might assist in their treatment and management. And I can reflect on two cases, Jane, that are very, very close to me, colleagues that have died of uh, bowel cancer. Um, So it's a pretty emotional thing. It's not just something I've taken up for topical reasons. Um, One person was a well-known senior academic from this, uh, this university, and he and I developed almost a father and son relationship when he retired his professorship at this university. We grew um, the Herb Echinacea together on his property. Um, a remarkable man. But yet, um, tragically, tragically, um, died of bowel cancer. Which wasn't detected which earlier, Which wasn't I detected suppose. earlier. So and early, that's puzzling. It's, early detection does actually have quite a good rate oh, look, of it, success. Uh, my understanding of it, Jane, and, and specialist physicians and surgeons, I hope, don't think I'm... Uh, simplifying it too much but my understanding of it is that if a tumour is discovered early the prognosis is excellent it's like prostate cancer and breast cancer if those uh, cancers or tumours are located early enough as in the case of my wife with her breast uh, tumour the prognosis is excellent but prevarication or a reluctance to undergo uh, the simple uh, home test which we've all seen, um, how can you show it, promoted on our television set, etc., a reluctance to participate in that could be a reluctance that has um, consequences. Uh, a second colleague of mine, uh, a very, very dear friend, who, um, interestingly, as a, a well-known specialist in this town, medical specialist, uh, 25 years or so ago, he studied uh, herbal medicine with me. He was not only an excellent specialist, but a fascination in complementary medicine. He had studied nutrition and then um, underwent training uh, with me at a postgraduate level in herbal medicine. And uh, unfortunately, uh, late in life, he presented at my clinic and uh, in New Lambton, where he used to frequently come just for a discussion. We had similar interests in philosophy and things like that. And he came and said, look, I've, I've been diagnosed with liver cancer. It's a secondary from the bowel. Um, I'm under an excellent oncologist, and so he was. Uh, he said, uh, I-, I want you to help me with herbs. I said, well, look, I said, that's a big call. He said, I know it's a big call. He said, but uh, I'm using my own nutritional knowledge because he had also studied uh, nutritional medicine, very eclectic, a specialist this gentleman was. He said, now, you taught me herbal medicine. 
he says, I, I, I want you, or he said, I want you to use your knowledge um, to help me fight this. And um, I believe, I believe to this day, and um, his discussions with me in the final stages of his battle uh, indicated that he believed, and certainly I believed, that the utilisation of complementary or natural medicine uh, to his management gave a better outcome, particularly as far as the time factor was concerned. It was too late to save him, mm. but the use of herbal and complementary medicine together with his nutrition um, gave him a better outcome for personal reasons. But again, he was a specialist medical practitioner in the town. I questioned myself. I wonder whether he should have undertaken perhaps a bowel testing. Health Naturally on 2NURFM and it is 25 past 12. Your calls, 49216216. Dennis Stewart, we're talking about bowel cancer and there is a government, a federal government initiative to detect early signs of bowel cancer. And you were talking just briefly about uh, dietary things and Mm. lifestyle things that might help. In the, in the fight against bowel cancer. And I'm glad you've said might help, Jane, because what we're talking about here are not curative measures. What we're talking about are things that might be useful in preventing it or working against the tendency because, as you and I were discussing before the program, some um, people uh, have a tendency, probably a, a genetic tendency, uh, to develop um, polyps, some of which may go on to become cancers. Um, this is so again in my wife's family line, and that is why she regularly has uh, colonoscopies. So um, we're not talking necessarily about a treatment, far from it. We're talking about what sorts of things are emerging in the literature and in the experience of physicians, um, GPs, naturopaths and others what sorts of things are emerging that may be useful in lessening the onset or slowing down the onset or working against the onset of these dangerous lesions on the bowel wall. I believe that there are a number of things that emerge and I'll go through them fairly briefly as I can only do so and these are just hints but I encourage listeners to follow up, follow up the literature that's available And you would have heard me talk years ago about a text that I've lectured from and believe strongly in a book called Foods That Fight Cancer. I consider it one of the most remarkable medical texts available out there that looks at lifestyle and food uh, ways of addressing various cancers, including colon cancer. Get hold of it and read it. Many uh, come to my rooms and get hold of it. It's available on the net I'm not just promoting it for promotion stages. This is an educational emphasis. Look at the look at the things that are happening around the world in relating particular foods and lifestyle to prevention of cancer per se, but also particularly certain cancers such as cancer of the colon. One thing before we take any calls. One thing that comes up in most of the literature that I've read is that there seems to be a correspondence between what we might refer to as the low-fibre diet and the assertion of bowel conditions. Now, what we mean by a low-fibre diet is a diet that is uh, restricted 
or very poor in the substance that we refer to as fibre, that non-digestible substance that passes through the gut and which can be useful in promoting transit time, in promoting um, healthy stool characteristics and uh, arguably working against deformation of the bowel wall as occurs in some conditions such as uh, diverticulosis or diverticulitis. There is an emphasis on the fact that in the Western diet, uh, particularly the Anglo diet, the diet that has been characteristic of Western countries such as uh, England and uh, the United States and Australia, there is an awareness that many lesions, particularly within the gut and particularly the large bowel or the colon, may be related to the way in which there is a significant deficiency in the amount of fibre in our diet, largely as a result, I would contend, of the way in which many traditional forms of fibre have been taken from the diet in the so-called refining process. The so-called refining process, uh, as frequently evidenced in certain foods, pastries and bread, etc., in certain of those, the refinement process has got rid of fibre and that together with other foods that are characteristic of our diet now, particularly processed foods, uh, bring, if you like, this low fibre emphasis which is considered to be a contributing factor in the development, as I've said, of many bowel lesions and perhaps bowel cancer, perhaps bowel cancer. It's certainly a contention by most naturopathic practitioners and some mainstream practitioners that the high-fibre diet, the high-fibre diet is a diet that does better for the bowel and has a resisting effect on bowel pathologies. So that's the first step that we can look at, and I know we've mentioned that on this program before, the way in which certain diets, particularly, say, the Mediterranean diet, with its emphasis on foods that contain a large amount of fibre, that that movement towards traditional diets, unprocessed diets, diets in which there are, if you like, high-fibre foods, that is one of the most important things that uh, naturopaths would contend is necessary to promote bowel health. Now, most listeners would have perhaps heard of that before. It's never too late to start to take on board an interest in what this means because it is contended, particularly by naturopathic physicians, that a low-fibre diet, uh, if you like, the diet that is characteristic of so much food we eat, that what it does is has a slowing-down effect on transit time through the bowel and that what it does is produced in this slow, reluctant passage through the, through the gut. It produces bacteria and subsequent carcinogens, which may be associated with the onset of bowel cancer. So one of the first things we have to do is fall in love with a diet that is increasingly unprocessed, a diet that is riddled, if you like, with fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, those sorts of foods that will give a high-fibre emphasis with its saving and protective effect on the bowel wall. Mm. And uh, Helen's rung in from Maryland. Helen, uh, you're about to go for a colonoscopy and you're wondering what the procedure is like, what you're in for. Is that right? Exactly. 
Exactly. I've never been put under and I'm quite frightened. I'm doing it on my own and, yes, I'm in my 50s. Look, Helen, I can can understand your um, concern, but let me just um, um, cause you to be less concerned. My wife has had multiple colonoscopies over many years for reasons that I've previously explained. Um, The procedure, uh, in my opinion and in her opinion, is not one that um, is onerous and certainly not one that um, is is painful or particularly invasive. Um, Just relax. And uh, and when you talk about going under, um, what you're probably talking about is the, uh, the, the treatment, the uh, in the um, in the theatre or the uh, room where the where the um, colonoscopy is done, where a small a sedative uh, relaxant is given, which um, will relax you and, if you like to use the terminology, uh, put you out for a very short period of time. Because a colonoscopy, uh, certainly my wife's experience, is a very short procedure. It's not a big, heavy. Uh, task in most cases, and I'm not a specialist, I might be talking too simplistically, but I'm speaking from my own experience with my wife going through this. So to start with, when you talk about going under, um, you are perhaps uh, overemphasizing the the, uh, preparation associated with the colonoscopy, which is a gentle sedative procedure. Uh, You don't even feel it. Um, I've had a colonoscopy and uh, really didn't uh, didn't uh, feel anything other than when I was coming out of the procedure and I came out without any problems as used uh, without any sickness or nausea so uh, my advice to you would be that you you're worrying too much in my opinion you're worrying too much it's a short procedure carried out by specialist practitioners who are very well skilled what it simply means is that your large colon uh, is investigated. I'll try to keep it simple with with a, a camera type thing, and that's the way I'll describe it. Uh, which also uh, is geared up with equipment to remove uh, some of the polyps if they're capable of being removed. And when those polyps are removed, they're subsequently uh, taken and a and a pathology test is done on them to just make sure that there is no evidence of any cancer in the polyps. There may not even be any polyps on your bowel wall, but they're usually uh, taken out if they're there, uh, investigated, and um, if they're all clear, that's uh, a very good result. Um, There's there's no serious um, side effects that my wife has experienced. If they are, I would contend they're probably pretty rare. Uh, The colonoscopy is such a common procedure these days and I come back to my dear wife's experience, the, she claims the procedure has been refined and, in her case anyway, um, has become um, less challenging, if you like. Now, I don't know if that's answered your question, but I would suggest you just relax. It's not an onerous procedure. You will not even know that it's taking place. It usually is a short procedure, uh, you will not be zonked out for any period of time. When you wake up, you usually take it in and give it a cup of tea. Um, usually the practitioner will just quickly tell you um, after you've um, retreated and, and had a cup of tea of, of what the finding was, and then you're on your way home. 
It's always a little bit unknown, isn't it, when it it's is. the first time? It is, and so, I can understand, Helen, yeah. um, saying that, but again, I've been tried, I'm trying to console the lady based on our family's experience, Jane, yes. that it's not as onerous as you might think, albeit, Helen, I would say that it might be useful if you could uh, go to the procedure with a friend uh, so that you can uh, be there and if you have to drive or subsequently like that, it's better to be driven rather than to drive yourself. Yes, that sounds good. Mm. So I hope the experience goes well for yeah, you, Helen. Yeah, good on you. Uh, Jerry has rung in from Salamander Bay. Um, your wife has severe leg cramps at night, Jerry. Yes, she does. Um, good afternoon. Hello, Jerry. Um, yeah, she has severe okay. cramps, yeah. and she has had a lot of back surgery. Okay, okay. Now, um, has the pain that she's experiencing or the so-called cramps that your dear wife is experiencing, have they, have they been definitely defined as cramps, or are they seen perhaps as being a neurological side effect? of the back yeah, surgery well, that she had. Could be a bit of both because she does have neuropathy as well in oh, her legs. Okay, okay. Look, yeah. this this is a complicated situation and it all behoves me to have, to have the answer to it. But a couple of suggestions might be useful. Um, right. these, these suggestions are not expensive and I would doubt very much if they would clash with anything your dear wife might be having or taking for her condition. Uh, the first thing is always start with magnesium. It's a, a good preparation. I usually recommend it at 200 milligrams a day. Um, and many patients who have not used a magnesium before for nocturnal cramps find that it is the one thing that tends to give them some relief. doesn't always work, but the good thing about it is it is inexpensive. If used sensibly, it's very safe. And even I find that many general practitioners now are recommending as a starting base magnesium preparations for this condition. That's principle, num that's principle number one. I'd be uh, using that. Uh, the second thing is, uh, and this is not so well known, I think there are one or two uh, preparations in the marketplace at our pharmacies or health food stores, uh, preparations that contain... Uh, the American herb, Viburnum opulus, which is uh, commonly known as cramp bark. Now, cramp bark yeah. speaks for itself. It is a herb that is traditionally used in the Anglo-American system of herbal medicine, which I practice and have taught for very many years. It's a very understandable herb. It may not cure the condition, but it may give some relief to the condition. I would use okay. use those two starting uh, things to kick off with. Uh, perhaps just one at a time. Go with the magnesium. Your wife will need to be on it for a little while to make any assessment. Secondly, if that doesn't really do much, uh, go for a preparation um, with viburnum opulus or cramp bark in it. And I'm sure there's a product uh, that is related exactly to this condition by its name in your pharmacy or health food store. She does take quinine. Is that yeah. the same as magnesium? Okay. No, quinine is a, an alkaloid extracted right. extracted uh, from a herb, the quinchona bark. Quinchona bark is uh, was a remedy that was uh, popularly used to address malaria, and one of its constituents, quinine, has also been shown to have um, some benefits 
in dealing with cramps. It has a very good reputation, although there's some questions about uh, its long-term usage. Your specialist, your neurologist or whoever prescribed it, would be more familiar with that than what I am. I don't see a lot of patients these days who are using quinine, uh, but uh, if she's getting some relief from it, one has to weigh up any possible side effects associated with it with the benefit that she may be getting. But having said that, having said that, uh, the use of magnesium would not in any way at all, as far as I'm concerned, clash with what your wife might be taking from her medical practitioner, and I doubt very much whether cramp bark also would interact. Yeah, she's not getting any relief from the quinate, really, we okay. don't think. Yeah. Okay, but look, also, Jerry, um, don't overlook the usage of uh, some physical therapies. Um, I would suggest you talk uh, to your medical managers and get their opinion on a course of acupuncture. Um, right. Acupuncture is still, in my opinion, an underrated and underutilised therapy. And I can speak from experience here because, as far as I'm aware, I was the first to practice acupuncture in the 70s at Hamilton South, and I saw the benefits uh, in, in many physical and neurological conditions. And there are some good medical acupuncturists in Newcastle. Talk with your medical managers about a referral uh, to one of them to uh, get a series of treatments to see if that does anything to lessen the severity of it. This is health naturally, but let's just take a quick look at the weather. It's windy still. It is mostly sunny today. At the moment, we've got 19 degrees at Georgetown. Health naturally on 2NURFM at 10 to 1. And Dennis, we're talking about... Um, uh, about bowel cancer and things. Now we've mm. talked about some lifestyle dietary mm, yeah, dietary yeah, yeah. things we can do yeah. to help conditions. Well, in we're our talking bowel. we're talking about the the, the high fiber emphasis. Uh, it's sometimes it's useful for for patients or people that aren't aware exactly of how that can involve uh, a change of diet towards more fibrous foods. Sometimes it's helpful if a deliberate form of fibre is brought into the diet as a complement or a supplement. Something as simple, for instance, as using, say, oat bran regularly, bring it into one's dietary program, that's a good source of fibre which has remarkable properties in the gut in the way in which it creates better stool characteristics, better transit time, uh, a healthier bowel wall, uh, working against many bowel pathologies as well as working against cholesterol um, and um, other things as well. So the, deliber the deliberate introduction of a fibre supplement may be a good way of working along this idea that fibre in the diet, particularly its effect on the large bowel, may be a significant way of lessening bowel pathologies and perhaps even cancer. But secondarily, it's quite interestingly, or it's quite interesting, how that there's emerging emphasis in good solid literature and in good solid um, practices and, and principles that our overemphasis on red meat may be a significant contributing factor, particularly to colon cancer. Now, before I came away, I refreshed myself with the ideas on this particular topic from the book Foods That Fight Cancer, where the two PhDs writing the book 
made the statement regarding uh, red meat that it considerably increases it considerably increases the risk of colon cancer. What were they saying? They were not saying, look, don't eat red meat. What they were saying was that the overemphasis that we have, feed the man meat sort of thing, uh, this sort of you know, meat three times a day scenario, this could, could be a contributing factor uh, to cancer of the, of the colon in particular. So even in literature of a medical nature, of a credible medical nature relating foods to various forms of cancer, there's this concern that a heavy red meat diet, that is meat coming from traditional sources, um, beef, lamb, um, these sorts of things, may be a contributing factor and that an alteration in the dietary emphasis away from a red meat emphasis towards other more eclectic forms of protein may be a significant way again over time of lessening the factor that too much of this could lead to bowel pathologies. We have uh, Gary who's rung in from Barnsley. Gary, you'd like to know about something to help with stress? Yes, thank you very much. Hello, Gary. G'day. How are you, Dennis? Good, good, good. Tell me about your stress, Gary. Where's it coming from? Uh, I'm also... um not much work. Um, I still owe on my home. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. Yeah, I understand, mate. Look, there is there is no easy way of, uh, say, taking this to get rid of the problem, but I'll suggest a few things that, mm-hmm. that might be useful for you. Don't, uh, o- don't overlook the reputation of the herb Hypericum or St. John's. Yeah, or St. John's wort. As a remedy, oh, as a remedy oh. that can cope with some of the anxiety or the depression that might emerge as a result of sustained <coughs> stress, that's one. Yep. Her- that's one herb that I would recommend. And if the anxiety factor that frequently accompanies stress is a very dominant thing and may be causing some insomnia, don't overlook the availability of the herb Carva Carva, which is available in a finished form capsule or tablet, perfectly legal from our pharmacists or health food stores, don't overlook its potential benefit in helping you cope with this. From a nutritional point of view, naturopaths have always emphasised the whole spectrum of what are called the B-group vitamins. And so a high-potency B-group vitamin might be useful for you. There's a a three-pronged approach that might be useful, but also, also don't overlook... Uh, the potential benefit of things such as meditation, which you can learn pretty freely from many centres these days, and certainly don't overlook the potential of something like massage therapy if you can afford it. Um, we're not getting a job. Yep. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I know, I know, <laughs> and that's what, that's why I said, Gary, if you can afford it. And uh, I, I realise, unfortunately, that many aspects of private medicine and even what I'm recommending to you bring with it a cost. But Hypericum in particular, Carva uh, Carva in particular, and the B-group vitamins are very reasonable as far as their price is concerned. And thank you very much for your call, Gary. Uh, just a few more seconds left, I suppose, Dennis. So yeah. wrapping up well, the bowel the, cancer, the, the, we will... This second thing about the, the, the red meat emphasis, this is not in any way at all a criticism of red meat per se. It's to talk about a balance. It's interesting 
that groups of people, like, say, the Seven-day Adventists, who traditionally have been vegetarian in their orientation, there is literature to suggest that their experience of bowel cancer is considerably less than the, than the ordinary population. Is that because they have moved from the red meat emphasis to more of an eclectic source of protein intake, safe of vegetables? Diet matters. Thank you, and that's Health Naturally for today. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com. <laughs>